The title this morning is The God of the Living, The God of the Living. In this series, uh, The Road to Resurrection, this Easter series. And we're in the middle of that series uh, on this journey in Mark's gospel uh, that will ultimately lead us to the destination next week in Easter. It's kind of a three-week series, but actually I realize it's a four-week series because after Easter, Cody is going to preach another resurrection text um, and another text on a road, the road to Emmaus, one of my favorite um, passages in the Gospels. Um, But that's the series that we're in, and last week in our first stop on this journey, we had a glorious destination. If you were here with us last week, we looked at the transfiguration story of Jesus. This was the story when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He brought three of his disciples with him, and all of a sudden he was transformed or transfigured in front of them. And that glory, that glory that was with him from eternity past, that was veiled in his incarnation, was in a moment revealed before his disciples. And in that moment, Two men greeted him, two men from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. All of a sudden, there's these men who are alive there with them. And as Melody put it, Melody, who works in our front office, our front office manager, um, her, her and I usually debrief on Monday about things. And, and she said to me, I thought you were going to say that the transfiguration, Jesus needed the transfiguration before his imminent disfiguration. And I'm like, ah. Melody, that'll preach right there. That's a great point. I should have said that. should have talked to her about it before. But the truth is, the glory of Jesus, it was not shown truly on the transfiguration, but on another mount, the Mount of Golgotha, when the glorious Son of God would bear the wrath of God towards sin in order that all who believe may be saved. So that was our first stop Last week. This week, however, is a special week. This week is Palm Sunday, which we know as that eventful and joyful day in the ministry of Jesus when he entered into Jerusalem and sort of kicked off what we know as Passion Week, the last few days of his life on earth before he would go to the cross and rise again three days later. But he went into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of. Uh, the prophet Zechariah, and by doing so, he was essentially announcing that he is the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. Mark describes the event in this way, and Brandon is going to go over this in his communion thought later on. But Mark writes, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. This is a significant day, not only because of what happened on that day, but because it was, again, the kickoff of Passion Week, a week filled with significant events and teachings in the ministry of Jesus that ultimately ends with the cross and resurrection. It's traditional, I think, on Palm Sunday to look specifically at the triumphal entry and what it means for us. But since we are in this series, The Road to Resurrection, uh, instead we're going to look at a confrontation that Jesus had in that Passion Week here in Mark 
12. And he had this confrontation with the elite Jewish religious political group known as the Sadducees. So we're going to talk about them a little bit. But before we do, the context of this story, at least as it's recorded in Mark's gospel, is actually a series of confrontations that Jesus had on various matters of interest to various different groups of people. The first group in the end of chapter 11, we read, were the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they came to Jesus questioning him on what authority he has to do, or he has, to do the things that he's doing and say the things that he's saying. Because they come to him immediately after he enters the temple and starts flipping the tables over, telling them, my father's house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. And they come to him and say, what authority do you have to do these things. And after a very contentious meeting with them, we read that a second group comes to Jesus. Only this time it was the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the Pharisees, think of them as the fundamentalist, legalistic, sort of right-wing group, political group in Jerusalem. And the Herodians, they were the political lobbyists for Herod, who at the time was the king of the Jews and pawn of the Roman Empire who ruled over the Jewish people. And the fascinating thing about the Pharisees is that though they were kind of buddied up with Rome, they also had sway over the common person, at least a lot more sway than the Sadducees had. They knew that the people loved Jesus, but they also knew that the people hated Rome. And so they hated Jesus, and they wanted him out, and so they create this question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they think that they've caught Jesus, but Jesus responds to them brilliantly, and they marvel at his response. Which brings us to that other group, the third group that Mark mentions, the one we're going to be talking about this morning, which is the Sadducees. And you'll see the discussion topic is not taxes or his authority, but the topic is resurrection. And is there life after death? So why don't we read it together, verse 18 of Mark chapter 12. And the Sadducees came to him, those who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Why don't we pray together? 
Father, once again, we want to come before you because those words are a bit chilling to us. When we come to your word, we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to get it wrong. We want to hear your word because we want to know your power in our lives. And we want to see your power in the lives of the people that we know and love. So God, help us in that endeavor. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe and understand, and then hands and feet to go and live out what it is that you're calling us to do and believe from your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can't help, as I read that story, uh, to think about what Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.15. He says this, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In other words, the greatest work that any of us can really make sure we do a really good job at, that we should endeavor to make progress in, is our ability to understand, interpret, and then apply God's word rightly to our own lives and to the people that we know, which means if we're being honest, there are times we don't. There are times we don't see it as clearly as we should, or we misapply it when we should be doing it another way. And we have to acknowledge that the reason why this happens is because every one of us, all of us, we come to the Bible with our metaphorical lenses on our face or over our hearts that often distort or color the understanding that we should get from the Bible. Whether those lenses are created by the culture that we were raised in, or are influenced by our own personal experiences or opinions or biases or even agendas, we all have a framework, we all have a worldview that we bring to our reading of a text of Scripture that can often get in the way of our ability to rightly understand God's Word. And in case you're wondering, it made me think, this is why we want to do ministry here at this church the way that we do it. When we go to life groups, many of you who are plugged into life groups, you read the text before, and then you go into a life group, and you're like, okay, I think I know what this passage is saying, and then you hear someone else share what they're sharing, and you're like, oh man, I totally got that wrong. Or maybe you read something and somebody else said something and you're like, wow, you can help correct one another. It's not just about your own personal, well, this is what I think God is saying. No one cares what you think. What is it saying? Truly, no one cares what you think. We want to know what the author thought. What is he saying to us from his word? Again, this is why we study in life groups like that. This is why we study through books of the Bible on Sunday. This is why we host a podcast in the week and go over it once again because we want to rightly know, rightly understand God's word. This is why our men's and women's ministries aren't just coffee and tea or bacon is great. We got to have bacon at a men's ministry event. But if we don't have the word, then we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong because our greatest work and our ministry endeavor to God and to one another is to make sure we are rightly understanding, interpreting, and then applying God's word to our lives. And because what's at stake? Let's think about that. What's at stake? It, it's so serious because we want to know God. 
That's the issue at stake here. We want to know him, not who we think he is, not who we want him to be. We want to know him for who he says he is from his word. We want to understand, we want to know him personally, but we want to understand his will for our lives and for our church and then walk in that will and walk in that truth. And we discover those things from his word. And we want to do this because we want to bring glory to him with our lives. It's kind of like if you're, you're married, right? And, and husbands, I'll, I'll just use you as a as an example here, your wife tells you, this is how I, I want to be loved, but instead you, you invite her to, I don't know, the things that you want to do. And, and you're saying, well, I did this thing for you and that showed love to you, right? And she's like, no, you, you don't get it. I, I don't like being loved in that way. It, going to a sports game is great, but that's what you love. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? That's just a, a cliche example. God wants to be glorified in the way he says in his word, this is how you bring glory to me. And finally, we want to know his word because we want to have blessings in our lives, right? Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man, blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in it he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the streams of water, right? This is what we want. We want our lives to be enriched and blessed and it comes from our understanding of the Word of God. This is why we take this so seriously. But the other reason why we take it seriously is because not only do we want to know God, we want to know His will, and we want to glorify Him and experience His blessings, but we don't want to, we don't want to unintentionally end up lost or broken or lead someone else down that wrong path like these Sadducees did. Being shocked that They were told they were wrong, though in their heart of hearts, they thought they were right. We're in this series on the road to the resurrection, looking at this story because we're introduced to a group of people who got the most important thing wrong, the resurrection. The most important thing wrong, the power of God revealed in life after this life. They got it wrong. And I want you to notice They aren't arguing their position that there is no resurrection, that there is no life after death. This is all there is. They're not arguing that position from science. They're not arguing that position from biology or philosophy or history. They're not arguing it from any of those things. They're arguing their position from Scripture. They're looking at the Bible and saying, I don't see it. Can you imagine arguing against a biblical doctrine using the Bible? I hope you can imagine it because people do it all the time. They do it all the time. But in nearly every instance that you will encounter, you will find that the problem is not with the Bible, but with that person's interpretation of it. Now, before we get into the details of the story, I do want to ground those details for you in the central truth. After all, why did Mark include this story in his gospel that overall the whole gospel is trying to lead us all to believe that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that it's only through him that we can have salvation. Why is he telling us this story? The primary truth is that this story seeks to establish that you can be sure, you can be sure of a resurrection because God's promises are not to the dead but to the living. I'll say that again. You can be sure of a resurrection because God's promises are not to the dead, but to the living. That's the big idea of this 
passage. So with that said, let's look at the details of the story and see how Mark exposes that truth to us from this confrontation. We've already established the context that this is Passion Week and Jesus is having a series of confrontations with different people. And now let's consider the characters of this story, those who came to Jesus with this ridiculous question. We are told they're the Sadducees. And we're told right away this very important detail about the Sadducees that this group teaches there is no resurrection. There's no such thing as life after death. And they believed that the books of Moses taught this. This is why they were called Sadducees. Rob wanted me to title this sermon a little bit differently because the pastor joke with the Sadducees is they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's, they were called, that's why they were called Sadducees because they're sad, you see, because they didn't believe. No, that's not why they were called Sadducees, but it's a funny preacher joke. Now that I got that out of my system, we can move on. But seriously, who were these people? Well, we know from other texts in Scripture and also from other historical documents that the Sadducees were this liberal, moderately progressive Jewish sect within Israel at this time. They possessed significant power within the Sanhedrin, which was the leading council in, on religious and political matters for the Jewish people. They, the opposing group for the Sadducees were the Pharisees. Um, which I've already mentioned, they were the more right-wing group. Uh, the Sadducees were often very wealthy and sympathetic toward the Roman Empire. And like I said, they were a, a more liberal, more progressive-minded group. By today's standards, we would think of them as modernists or humanists or naturalists. They, they believed in empirical evidence. If I can't see it or touch it, then it's not real. Believing that this life is all that there is, which is another reason probably why they sought power and riches in this life. Because after all, if it's just this life and there's no consequence in the afterlife, well, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? This is their belief. In chapter 23 of the book of Acts, we're told a bit more. It says, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, so we didn't know that, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So we have more detail about the Sadducees. They didn't just believe in or not believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in spiritual things in this way. And a large cause for this, we also know that the Sadducees did not accept the entire Old Testament books, 39 books in the Old Testament. They only believed in five, the first five books of Moses, meaning they did not believe in the books of Kings or Chronicles or the Psalms or any of the prophets. They didn't believe in any of those books. They just believed in the books of Moses, and they did not accept them into their canon, their doctrine of faith. So with that said, all this great background, we can see now a little bit more color for this question, this story, this situation that they come to Jesus with. It makes more sense. So we've established the context and the character, and then there is Jesus teaching this crazy notion about a resurrection from the dead, and we have the Sadducees, this group of people who don't believe in that. They don't believe in resurrection or spirits or angels. You know, I was thinking it's too bad one of them, just one of them, couldn't have been there on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
seeing Moses and Elijah standing right there, I bet they would have felt really dumb thinking of their belief. But because of these differences of perspective, we have an an inevitable conflict, right? And that conflict comes in the form of a question they have for Jesus about laws on marriage and remarriage from the law of Moses and Deuteronomy. And they're trying to take this story or the situation about about marriage and remarriage and relate it to resurrection, which may sound strange, but in fact, the background is that for the Sadducees, this law was their silver bullet. It was their trump card. It was the thing that they always had with them that sort of said, well, how can you explain this? You can't explain that in light of that. And isn't that what people do nowadays, right? When they try and discredit the Bible, they have their one little trump card that's totally mis understood or misguided in their understanding, and that's what they do, and that's what they're doing here. And they're using this law, it's called the Leverite Marriage Law, and it comes out of Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. And this law essentially states that if a married man dies without children, his brother must marry his wife, and the children that come from her perpetuate the dead brother's name. And the term for this is a kinsman redeemer. Now, you have to understand at this time, if that happened to a wife, then she was very vulnerable to provide for herself in a more male-dominated society. It would have been a real struggle for her. So this was partly to save her literally from going into starvation or poverty, these kinds of things. But the main idea was to continue that brother's name because the Jews were very passionate about genealogies because they wanted to see or know if their family was in the line of the Messiah. So they didn't want their line to end. So this law was created in order to help both of those things. But because of this teaching on marriage, the Sadducees thought, well, how can this law and resurrection How can they work together because they were under the impression that marriage on earth is continued in heaven in the same way, that if they're binding on earth, they're binding in heaven. And all of these dead husbands are there in this story with this one wife. And if that's true, well, that doesn't make sense because God would never advocate for polyandry, right, where a woman is married to multiple husbands. So they believed there's no way any of this can reconcile. It must mean there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, they give this scenario to Jesus, and it's obviously extreme. A woman with seven husbands, what situation could that ever happen? And they tell it in that way to show this is ridiculous. There's no way we could ever believe in a resurrection. How could this possibly happen? And you have to love it because these people actually think they've stumped Jesus with their question. But I love the way Jesus responds in verse 24. He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you don't know the Bible. You don't know the scriptures. And you don't know the power of God, which essentially means you don't have salvation. You've never experienced conversion in your heart and in your soul. You don't, therefore, you're still blind, right? You, you don't get it. You don't understand the scriptures and you don't know God's power. And then he says again in verse 27, you are quite wrong. Now, the, I was thinking about it. the problem isn't really their question. The question is a good question if what they believed about the Bible was true. The problem isn't the question. It's the foundation for the question is based off of wrong facts. 
For starters, they did not believe in the whole testimony of the Old Testament. You hear people even today saying, all we need is the New Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. As one would say, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That would be ridiculous. We cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. To reject the, any book of the Bible is to, re, to lose the testimony of God's salvation. And, and there's, they're messing up here by only accepting the first five books of the Bible and rejecting the others. But they're also doing something that we see people do often, which is they're reading into a text something that isn't there. They're using a text that's talking about marriage and saying, how does that relate to resurrection? Well, why don't we just use that text to talk about what it's talking about instead of using it to talk about something else? And we see people do that all the time and get a wrong interpretation and therefore a wrong application. But I was thinking, could you imagine what these pretentious socialites, these Sadducees must have felt like when this, these wealthy, educated politicians being told by some poor rabbi from Nazareth that you are wrong? Anger probably doesn't adequately capture the emotion of this moment. Today, could you imagine walking up to somebody and telling them after they say something very passionately, you're wrong? <laughs> People's emotions are too fragile today to say something like that. On, on, you do that on social media and all of a sudden there's just like a horde all over you, right? People can't handle being told that they're wrong. And yet at the same time we think about this interaction, Jesus is not being rude or mean, he is being so kind in saying, listen, you're wrong, and let me show you where you're wrong. In fact, I'll even accommodate the fact that you only believe in the first five books of the Bible. I'll ground my argument there in the books that you readily accept. But the first thing he does is he corrects their understanding about life after death and marriage. He essentially tells them your question is wrong because your understanding of life after death is wrong by assuming in heaven it's going to be just like how it is on earth in regard to marriage. He tells them when you die, you are neither married nor are you given in marriage. In other words, there is no marriage in heaven, at least not like how it is on earth, which means the vow you made for those of you who are married, it's true. Till death do you part. Till death do you part or till death parts us. That's true. Now, it's important to understand what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that when we pass away, that, that when we get to heaven, we don't know our spouse or there isn't love or affection there. It's not saying that we don't know our kids anymore, our family members. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's just saying the institution of marriage this covenant relationship that you have, that a couple has between husband and wife that is grounded in this life and has its purposes here, those purposes end when we get into heaven. And he gives one reason for it here in the text, because our nature is different. We're not the same as we were on earth when we get to heaven. We are in a glorified state. He says we're like the angels in heaven. It's, it's that condition that the three disciples saw Moses and Elijah in on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we also know from other parts of the New Testament that marriage in heaven is unnecessary, at least between husband and wife, like it is here on earth, because the purpose of marriage, at least Christian marriage here on earth, the ultimate purpose that Paul spells out in Ephesians is to point to the greater marriage, which is the marriage between Jesus and the church 
between those who he died for and us and our bridegroom, Jesus. And so our marriages are really just a shadow of the greater marriage that we will have in heaven between us and Christ. And so there is no need for it anymore. So again, on earth, along with all of the wonderful purposes of marriage, that great purpose is to point us to the ultimate marriage, which is the marriage between Christ and his church. So the Sadducees, their biggest problem was that they wrongly assumed that marriage in heaven was the same as marriage on earth and that our bodies in heaven will be like our bodies exactly here on earth when in reality we will be transformed into a glorious condition. But as for the more important matter about resurrection, Jesus addresses that in the next verse, verse 26, when he says, as for the dead being raised, your other part of your question, he says, for this biblical reality of resurrection, he gives them an argument for the truthfulness of resurrection. Again, from the first five books of Moses, it's specifically from the book of Exodus, one of the quintessential stories in Moses, the time when God called Moses and revealed himself to him at the burning bush. And he asked them, hey, remember that moment, the burning bush? Of course you all know it. Everybody knows it. He says, did God not say in that moment to Moses, as he revealed himself to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and Jacob? Not I was the God of those guys, but now they're dead, so there's, I'm not the God of them anymore. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, presently their God. And I love the way he summarizes the point in verse 27. Your view of God is wrong. He says, he's not the God of the dead. He's not the God of those people in the past. He's the God of the living. He's the God of the living. So again, going back to that bigger point, you can be sure of a resurrection, both in Jesus' resurrection and for all of those who believe in him, because God's promises that he made to his people are not to the dead, but to the living. So again, these, these pretentious Sadducees, they had a big problem. They didn't know God, though they thought they knew him. That's the, that's the difficult thing. They thought they knew him, and the cause of such an error was because they didn't know his word. And because they didn't know God, they didn't know his word, they couldn't experience and they could not comprehend his power in their lives, which I think is what I want to close on, that thought about the power of God. You know, we often wonder, what is the greatest expression of God's power that we could possibly see or experience? Is it the power of God in creation, this, this God in Genesis 1 who spoke and put all of the stars in the sky and, and put all of the planets into orbit and holds it all together? Is that the greatest demonstration of God's power? Or was it when he delivered the nation of Israel with signs and wonders out of slavery in Egypt and delivered them across the Red Sea and brought them into the promised land? Is that the greatest demonstration of God's power? Or was it in the incarnation when God came down to us in the form of a human being in the person of Jesus? What is the greatest evidence of God's power in the world? What was it? Well, the New Testament seems to believe and state that the power of God is most clearly seen in the gospel story. What's the gospel story? It's the story of Jesus, the one who died, 
and rose again from the grave. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Again in 2 Corinthians, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. And there's, there's this great prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians 1. And he's writing to the churches there, and he's praying this for them. He says that he wants them to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God's greatest display of power to us, to his people, is not just in creation, not just in deliverance, not in all of these things, but in raising Christ from the dead. And it gets more personal because it's not about what, just what he did for Jesus 2,000 years ago. But through Jesus, raising people like you and me from spiritual death to spiritual life. There was a point in all of our lives when we were lost, we were in darkness, we were in blindness, we neither knew God nor his power. And yet there was a time when God intervened. He came into our lives. He revealed himself to us. He brought us from spiritual darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. And that experience, that conversion experience that we have had as we see Christ for who he is and what he has done for us, there is going to be one day where we experience that power that ultimately brings us into heaven. But even right now, we get a taste of it when we when our lives are transformed and changed by this power. That same power that lives in us right now is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead three days after he was crucified on a cross for us. So it's through faith in the gospel and through a greater understanding of the word of God that we don't just get information. It's not just about knowing facts about God, but the life-changing transformation of the power of God that's what saves. It transforms our daily lives here and now, and it assures us of an eternal life to come from the God who is not the God of the dead, not the God of the promises of the past that don't end up for e eternity, but he is the God of the living. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you, and again, we come back to that prayer we prayed earlier that that God, we pray that as we study your word, we want to rightly understand and know it. And we can only do it as you shine the light onto your word so that we can see it clearly. And so God, I pray that you would help us in that work to be workmen who need not be ashamed, but rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we wanna do this because we wanna know you, God. We want to know you for who you are as you've revealed yourself to us from your word. We want to know your will for our lives, and we want to walk in that will by the power of your spirit. We want to glorify you, and we want our lives to be blessed by the way you describe blessing from your word. And we want to lead other people to do the same, and the only way we can do that is by knowing your word and knowing your power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
And so we thank you for this story, and we pray for those that we know who, like the Sadducees, neither know your word nor know your power. And we pray that they would come to know you through the witness and testimony of your people who share your gospel. And especially this time of year around Easter, and I pray that we would have that that resolve to even be like Jesus and be okay to tell people they're wrong, but then show them the truth, the truth of Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.